This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Craig, don't be scared. I've done okay. this before. Wait. Show me your teeth. Ew, no. Show me your teeth. No, they're my teeth. Show me your teeth. You can't have them. Don't. Stop trying to take my teeth. I don't want no money. That stuff's ugly. Mm-hmm. I just want your sex. Uh-huh. So you were reading the lyrics to the amazing, everybody's favorite Lady Gaga song teeth take a bite of my bad girl me god i don't know when you started trolling me with this song i think it was after it appeared in that shark week ad and i just (laughs) declared that i was tired of it i love that song primarily for the line that i just sang and the jangly guitar that doesn't make any sense none of it makes sense it's pretty good that's the great thing like where would we as a society be without album filler tracks like teeth (laughs) Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And I I discovered something listening to Lady Gaga on Spotify today. (laughs) That if you just listen to just her whole channel, like there's it's a it's a mess. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there. She's what got, does like, that mean? Just like as an artist, she's evolved over her her decade or whatever. She's got an eclectic music, eclectic sets of uh, eclectic styles and genres that she participates in. She's got multiple mm-hmm. duets with one Tony Bennett, mm-hmm. who I love cool. and adore. Uh, and then she's got that kind of like four to the floor Euro pop. All the songs kind of sound like Born This Way vibe. Four to the floor. All right, so while you look up four to the floor, I'm going to say that we are reading White Teeth. Rhythm pattern used in disco and electronic dance music. Okay, I just, okay, four, four time. That's what it is. Four, four time, and you're on the floor dancing to it. Well, and it's, yes, it's also like it doesn't have a backbeat the way rhythm and blues does. Mm-hmm. It, it's not on the beat is not on the two and the four. No, it's on all four. It's on, oh, you're on all fours on the floor in the club. Mm-hmm. with it's lady gaga <laughs> so really it's got bubbles and everything uh so we are talking about zadie smith's white teeth which was recommended to us by someone katie uh one of our <laughs> illustrious patreon donors i was pulling it up in real time this is a real time mm-hmm. podcast welcome mm-hmm. um but so yeah, it's just, just we can start talking about the book. No, we don't have to keep talking about Lady Gaga unless you want to talk about your personal relationship to Lady Gaga's music. I don't need to. Just that like I didn't expect to like it, and then I liked it. But this was in like 2009 yes. before she had released anything that wasn't good. I, <laughs> okay. Um. So Zadie Smith, she is a uh, she's a British author. Born in 1975 as Sadie Smith. 
Yeah. Um, so I looked up a lot about when and why she changed her name. She changed it when she was 14, and as best as I can tell, this is from like a Guardian info page. Mm-hmm. She changed it because it sounded more exotic. Sure. Which sounds like that's the most 14-year-old thing that I've ever heard. So I f- that works for me. Yeah, I recall someone in my like class around age 13 or 14 like – changing like a girl named Kristen who like changed one of the eyes to a Y. Interesting. Like, I knew I, a girl named Claire CL who changed it was C L A I R E and then she changed it to K L A I R. Yeah. And she but she changed she's changed it back since then. Oh. <laughs> it's just a temporary thing. Okay. Uh yeah. I don't know as many dudes who've experimented with names like that sometimes people do like the they do the first name middle name switch sometime oh, around yeah. there if they're mm-hmm. gonna do it sometimes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um that's all the insight i have on this particular time sometimes you show up to a new school and you tell everybody that your nickname is top gun yeah and you like talk with a british accent for some reason or something yeah the top gun thing is real though right like that's a real story the top gun thing is real as and is does, didn't he, he like he Wanted everyone to call him Top Gun, and he also thought that his catchphrase should be "The gun gets it done." Yes, if I recall. Yes, right. he was also our high school's best wrestler. <laughs> like, so the gun did get it done on multiple he did occasions. Get it done. Good job, Top Gun. Uh, so we're talking about Zadie Smith. Zadie Smith, <laughs> uh, born to a Jamaican mother and English father. Um, she's got a couple half siblings and two younger brothers. One of her younger brothers is a rapper and stand up comedian called Doc Brown. I'm not really familiar with him, but he has his own Wikipedia article. So I assume that at least in some circles, he is, he is considered known. noteworthy. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, yeah, she writes novels, essays, short stories. Um, in a 2004 BBC poll, she was named one of the 20 most influential people. Um, this list was very like it was. This is a very 2004 list. Is this British people or just people? Bri- I, th- I believe it's just British people. Okay. It also includes um, Johnny Ive, the Apple designer guy. Okay. Um, Ricky Gervais, who's <laughs> I don't think would make any such list today. No. Um, J.K. Rowling, who's still up there, but I feel like in 2004 she would have been more up there. That's so peak. That makes sense. That's peak Rowling. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, Ewan McGregor. Oh yeah, <laughs> so young Obi Wan, Mister mm-hmm. Big Fish. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, she studied English lit at King's College in Cambridge, and um, in two also in two thousand four, she married Irish novelist and poet Nick Laird. Um, they have two kids now, and they currently split their time between New York City and London. Um, as far as her her literary accomplishments she's written five novels all of which have been pretty well received Mm -hmm. Uh, white teeth was her first in 2000 um the autograph man in 2002 on beauty in 2005 um nw in 2012 i don't know if that's supposed to be pronounced i saw that one i don't really know yeah um i think it's it pertains to like a location in london or something london yeah Yeah. Um, and swing time which just came out in the fall of 2016 um white teeth she seems like she has a complicated relationship with white teeth because it's her first book and i think she'd like even just a couple years after she considered her voice in it to be like pretty immature um she's on uh she's on record as saying in uh 
she wrote a review of it that and it's not it's not clear like I read a few different pieces and it's not clear whether this was supposed to be satirical or tongue in cheek or like totally serious but she did describe white teeth as um what is it um the literary equivalent of a hyperactive ginger haired tap dancing 10 year old <laughs> okay we'll hold on to so, that image i suppose not super proud of her style and she was and um i listened to an audio clip where she was talking about how young writers think they know everything and then as oh, you sure. grow up you stop like having like pithy little phrases to explain the complexities of the universe <laughs> yeah we'll get i we might get into that cuz i actually really like some of the pithy phrases in this book well um, it's it's worth i i bring up her reaction to it only because it doesn't mesh with like the popular that's true. reaction to that's it true. like it was it was really well reviewed at the time it won a bunch of awards um but she wrote it yeah go ahead go ahead just, uh, it include those awards include the James Tate Black Memorial Prize for fiction, the White, the Whitbread Book Award uh, for best first novel, the Guardian First Book Award, Commonwealth Writers First Book Prize, the Betty Trask Award, um, included in Time Magazine's list of the hundred best English English language novels from 1923 to 2005, um, and when it first surfaced in 1997 as an unfinished uh, manuscript, it kicked off like a small bidding war between publishers who all wanted the rights to it yeah so, it's a 460 yeah. page book that she was shopping around at the age of 22 and it was sold when she submitted like an 80 page manuscript mm-hmm. so yeah she kind of knows what she's doing and it's funny to it's funny to find out that she is like meh I could have been I get better. I that way about stuff I wrote like a week ago, though. Like, what yeah. idiot? Who did these, this or these <laughs> words? That's irresponsible. Uh, I did find a Guardian series that had like a bunch of contemporary authors and their 10 rules for writing. There are a couple that I thought were pretty interesting. One is don't romanticize your vocation. You can either write good sentences or you can't. There's no <laughs> there's no writer's lifestyle. All that matters is what you leave on the page. Which I think it, that's that's fair. I think the like I have a novel under my bed and I'm tortured about the fact that I can't do anything with it is I think she's kind of critiquing that a little bit. Or just like I am I am an author. I'm an author with a capital A and I have sure. really great true things to share about the world and you should sit down and just buckle up yeah uh she buckle up and prepare to absorb my genius <laughs> she says avoid your weaknesses but do this without telling yourself that the things you can't do aren't worth doing don't mask self-doubt with contempt i don't think i'd ever heard that articulated and that's really i find that like encouraging for folks who do or don't like writing or reading genre fiction like if that's not a thing you're into because you don't like don't mistake i like that like don't tell yourself that a thing you can't do isn't worth doing like that has a lot of ego attached to it that she seems pretty keen to get rid of i think it sounds like good advice for anything like it sounds like good advice for like fist fighting too (laughs) avoid your weaknesses yeah, like if you can't throw a good left hook, then punch with your right hand, you know, or kick or something. I don't know. But don't trick yourself into thinking that the other guy won't throw a left hook if he's yeah, good at right. left hooks. Like you should be ready for it. Okay, this don't next get in rule your head about it. probably doesn't apply to fighting. It says well, work. I'll be the judge of that. Thank you. Work on a computer that is disconnected from the internet. 
That is a good, just the, also a good life rule. Maybe not a good fighting rule. I don't, I don't think so. Uh, this uh, maybe fighting. Who knows? Tell the truth through whichever veil comes to hand, but tell it. Resign yourself to the lifelong sadness that comes from never being satisfied. So that that speaks to the same person who would write a review of her book and call it immature. <laughs> Of her own award-winning book. Of her own well-received <laughs> first novel, yeah. So she seems like a cool person. Like, she's teaching at NYU. She taught at Columbia for a while now. Um, so, yeah, she seems like she knows what's up. And I, I'm excited to tell you about this book, Andrew. Please do. So it's structured in four parts that are named after a bunch of the characters. And I think the way we're going to end up tackling this book is like, these are the characters, here's some stuff that happens to them, and then here are some like tie-it-together themes because mm-hmm. the because it jumps around so much, it can get a little like in the weedy plot-wise, and that's not as important for us today, I hope, I don't think. Okay. We don't want to get out into the plot weeds. Yeah, because I, I also think that that will misrepresent the book as a confusing read, which it is not. It is sure. it is a very modern book. I, I say that as like in the way that like some elements of it appeal to me in the same way that I enjoyed reading like Wallace. Like it's not that performative, but it doesn't really care as much about like the arc as it is the individual characters and what they're feeling. Okay. So like what do you what kind of stuff do you want to try and focus on? Like what Let's run down the major players and how we meet them first. Okay. Mm. So the two main characters are Archibald Jones, Archie, Good uh name. Samad Iqbar, uh Iqbal, excuse me. Samad Iqbal. Uh and they are two friends from World War II. They both served in the war, and most of the book takes place in the 70s and then after from their 80s and 90s. And the book opens with Archibald on New Year's Eve in 1975. Uh, and I just want to, this is like, this is literally the beginning of the book, and I just want to, it's such a good summation of who Archie is. Archibald, Ar- Alfred Archibald Jones was dressed in corduroy and sat in a fume-filled Cavalier Musketeer estate face down on the steering wheel, hoping the judgment would not be too heavy upon him. He lay in a prostrate, prostrate cross, jaw slack, arms splayed on either side like some fallen angel, scrunched up in each fist he held his army service medals and his marriage license, for he had decided to take his mistakes with him. A little green light flashed in his eye, a signaling a right turn he'd resolved never to make. He was resigned to it. He was prepared for it. He had flipped a coin and stood staunchly by the results. This was a decided-upon suicide. In fact, it was a New Year's resolution. Okay. <laughs> so the fir- the whole first section is like, let's play this guy's comically tragic suicide for some laughs. Like, he gets... Sure. He gets... I mean, that's what I would do. That's just like the natural he's, response to this sort of thing. He's a schlub. He he is like p- painted as this schlubby guy who doesn't. He's kind of unmoored this whole like idea that he decided to kill himself by flipping a coin is really like a through line for him. He doesn't make big decisions without flipping a coin. Um, is he two face? Like what? it's. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, it's not out of superstition. It's more out of like indecisiveness, indecisiveness, and lack of certainty. Um, he's saved by like a a halal business owner who comes up to him and he's like, "We're not licensed for suicides here. Uh, we're kosher, and if you're gonna die here, I have to bleed you out properly." <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, are there suicide licenses? Like, I don't think so. I no, I don't think so. Okay. I don't think that that's a thing that a restaurant can get. That seems not real. It just, I mean, it de- okay, it depends on if this is written in the future and it's in Donald Trump's America. Mm. And also, I guess it would depend on, like, the state and city that you're living in. It's Or it's not, like, a Futurama thing. Like, it's not played, it's, it's not that type of comic. Like, this, okay, is, sure. a, this is a, like, Pagliacci clown, woe, Arch, woe be unto Archie and his sad. Pagliacci is the clown's name. Well, I think of him as a pal, so I call him Pagliacci. <laughs> Uh, Archie uh, has decided. It just ruins the joke because the doc, like Pagliacci, goes in to ask the doctor what's wrong with him, and the doctor says, "Oh, you should go see this cool, funny clown, Pagliacci." And Pagliacci's like, "Okay, thanks, doc." And everything worked out for the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Archie is taking his own life, or attempted to. Because his wife of 30 years walked out on him. And something I noted in uh, Smith's bio is that her parents did split when she was 14. And it was her father's second marriage, I think. Um, And some of the language she has about divorce as a child of divorce were just like really poignant. Archie's marriage felt like buying a pair of shoes, taking them home, and finding they don't fit. For the sake of appearances, he put up with them, and then all of a sudden, and after 30 years, the shoes picked themselves up and walked out of the house. She left, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And then when he goes to, he has to go get a vacuum, ho- like he has to get his vacuum back from her, of course, because, you know, and then that hose ends up being part of his suicide plan. And Smith says, this is what divorce is, taking things you no longer want from people you no longer love. Just like, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> So pithy- I think that's the kind of that's the kind of pithy little thing that she would she would maybe look down on as a writer now. Yeah, I guess. But I still like it. Though. It's very it satisfying. Mean I don't like it. Yeah. It's very satisfying. Um, so he is leading this like aggressively mediocre life. Like he obviously, yeah, <laughs> we all are, aren't we? Um, and he is rescued by this halal guy, and he ends up at like a the aftermath of a new year's eve party like he's this like 47 year old dude he crashes this like party with a bunch of like teenagers and early 20 somethings and this woman clara bowden uh comes down the stairs and she's this gorgeous black woman who's walking down the stairs and he starts talking to her and they like you know strike up a conversation i don't really know exactly why she digs him kind of because she's just escaped a relationship and why would anyone like him so i guess i will maybe he's just got a like a cool sad troubled vibe you know yeah there's like a riff on like her the previous guy she liked she liked him because he was like had a last guy on earth vibe (laughs) like yeah we'd get around to him if he was the last guy on earth Mm-hmm. And Archie is the laster guy on Earth, I the suppose. The lastest guy on yes. Earth. Like, the guy 
who like the last guy on earth dies or something and then you find out that this other guy's actually been here this whole time Andrew, you just didn't notice him he works at like a paper slash stationary company and he's in charge of making sure things fold correctly somebody's got to do that I, I mean a robot would do it now but I, back back in 2000 <laughs> 2000 times 2000 yeah. probably we hadn't invented a robot I, that did that i yet. wonder if like paper the paper industry is just a thing that Brits have been making fun of. Because that's like a whole thing for office space, too. You mentioned Ricky Gervais earlier. Do you mean off the office? Oh, excuse office me. Space the is office. A thing. Yeah, office yeah. space is a whole different thing. With the copier mm-hmm. and the gangster rap. That's and like the pieces of flair. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We, we all know yes. about office space. <laughs> except for you, I guess. <laughs> Apparently. Uh, so Clara, whom we meet in this instance, obviously she's almost 30 years younger than him. She is the daughter of a Jamaican immigrant to, uh, or migrant to Britain. Interesting, because that was her mother. Yes. Um, and so... She immigrated in, like, the late 60s, I think. Yep. A uh, similar story. Uh, Clara, her mom, Hortense, is a, is a very devout Jehovah's Witness. So Clara spends a lot of time as a kid, like, pass, passing out pamphlets at school. You know, about the 144,000 people that are going to make it when the end times come. Yep. And at one point, uh, this is this is the 1975 year that we meet at the beginning of the book. Uh, that was supposed to be an apocalypse, and it didn't happen. Um, so then we got way around for the next one, I suppose. Of course, her teenage years don't go great because this guy that she's into, because he's the last man on Earth, not... Archie, but the other guy, Ryan Tops, she starts trying to like rebel from her Jehovah's Witness mom by getting into this guy. And lo and behold, she comes home from school one day and this guy has already been converted by her mom and they're trying to save her because that's how that goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the thing about Clara that kind of sets off the why this book is called White Teeth, I suppose. Um, she gets in this fight with Ryan, and then he's trying to like lecture her about the Bible and how whether or not she's going to make it into heaven. She gets on the back of his like Vespa scooter, and he like ru- runs into a tree, and her teeth get knocked out. And you meet her uh, when Archie meets her, and he like realizes she doesn't have teeth, and it's like a, she's like, "Yeah, it's fine. It just happened. I'll get new ones. Whatever." Mm-hmm. So this teeth thing is like. I might, the name of the book. It's the name of the book. There's it gets mentioned at least like seventy times in the book. <laughs> I did a search for. Oh, two. really? Okay, I thought you were being like hyperbolic for no for humor's <laughs> sake or something. No, and uh, the characters. It's a kind of a. I don't think that she would use this type of metaphor now, judging on how she's judged her previous self. Um, but it's a pretty potent metaphor for what she wants to deal with. So it's uh, teeth have roots, as you might know, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Yep. And all, almost all of the characters in this book are first or second generation um, immigrants. So they, or the, they're, so they're either immigrants or they're you know sons and daughters thereof. Um, save like Archie, because he's just this like moreless coin flipping dude from britain um but the idea of roots then factors into 
their understanding of themselves. Um, Samad, who I mentioned earlier, Samad Iqbal, um, he is from Bangladesh, and so he and his wife are from Bangladesh, and they're like they're Muslim and they're they don't quite fit in, but they also are like too British now to not to like properly be uh, Bengali. Um, and at one point, Samad says, uh, "Roots were roots, and roots were good." You would get nowhere telling Samad that the first sign of tooth decay is something rotten, something degenerate deep within the gums. So you, this kind of cracks open this idea that for all these people who are f- ostensibly from somewhere else, like they can't go back and they can't put in roots where they are now because they're an other in the place where they are. But all they want for their kids and their children and their and the generations thereof are like for them to have any sort of ownership over the roots in the first place. I guess I'm not sure if this metaphor is working for me. Hmm. Like comparing the roots of teeth to a, the roots that a person puts down, it seems a little forced i don't know yeah i i don't think it's the roots that you it's less the roots you put down than the roots you had in the first place um so your ties to where you came from well just like your metaphorical roots like maybe not necessarily one the ones that you put down but like roots in the sense of your relationships to other people sure places and and sure uh i think like the other side of that coin is teeth as this like white teeth explicitly get described for most characters, even though they're like of a variety of races and backgrounds. Um, And so there's this like hunt for a unifying factor in their like literal personhood um, in their physical selves that like teeth. I guess. Yeah. It's, you know, (laughs) everybody's got them. They're always white. Like, Unless you drink a lot of coffee or a lot of red wine or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the characters, it it is a fixation, I think. Uh, Maybe that's too strong of a word. But Smith often comments on it when she's describing a new character. Um, Like, what type of teeth do they have? Or, you know, are they buck-toothed? Or are they very pretty gleaming teeth or not? That kind of Mm -hmm. thing. So that's just it's it's a physical description that all of the characters do share despite all of the things that they don't. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Um so going back to Samat, because he's the other main character, um he used you know, he was a student and he was a scientist. He actually works at like his cousin's curry restaurant as a waiter. And it's this kind of unglamorous work until three in the morning job his wife uh alsana like sews clothes in their basement all day um and when they end up having twins like they are you know trying to scrape together money and samad lives this life where like he wishes at one point that he could wear like a placard on his chest that just says like i'm not a waiter I've been a student, a scientist, a soldier. We live in East London. I'm a Muslim, but Allah has forsaken me, or I have forsaken Allah. I'm not sure. I have a friend, Archie, and others. I am 49, but women still turn in the street sometimes. <laughs> I love that last sentence a lot. 
And I'm 49, but I still got it. But I still got it like a little bit. Please believe me. Um, but just he, take my word for it. Just take my word for it. Uh, so, yeah, he's he's this. And I've heard this story before. Uh, sons and daughters of immigrants who are like, yeah, my my mom was like this, you know, amazing uh, like PhD researcher and then came over here. And like could not get the same quality of job that she had in America, right. um, and the education didn't transfer the way that it should have, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's like trying to live this kind of. He's forced into like, how can I get food on the table, um, knowing that he has done a lot more than that, and he is kind of fixated with the story of his. Uh, ancestor uh, who may or may not have like started a Bengalese revolution. Um, Wait, what's the ambiguity there? <laughs> so it's, 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 How it's do you not know. <laughs> it's this guy named Mangal Pandey and um, or Pandy, I suppose, because then that double meaning of like being a coward comes up later. But in 1857, he. Uh, like fired a gun and he may or may not have missed a, a guy on purpose, like a British soldier on purpose because he actually didn't want to kill him. He But he did end up shooting himself in the leg and then getting taken in and like hanged. And the historians, many of them white, who wrote about it kind of paint him as a buffoon who just made this mistake and then ended up paying for it. But maybe it wasn't a mistake. But maybe it wasn't a mistake, and maybe it was this guy who was like standing up for his people and and fighting for what he believed in. And there's really not a lot of evidence for that. <laughs> and uh, Samad has kind of like hung his life's hat on this idea that his great grandfather was a a person of importance, um, and that he comes from stock of that caliber. Because otherwise, I guess the caliber where maybe you were an idiot, but maybe well, you but actually he, were an accidental revolutionary. But he doesn't believe in maybe that. Like he he really wants things to be certain. Uh, and well, that there's one is that there is one thing that we know is that belie- believing something and wanting something hard enough is, if anything, better than that thing actually being true. Sure, it's for most of the time it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, his wife, he and his wife Alsana don't have the best relationship uh so a little ways in the book the two couples that we have are so there's samad and alsana and there's archie and clara and these two couples that are grown up together they have kids um alsana views sex as like a means to have kids like they don't i don't believe that they have sex very often now is his is his uh opinion on sex like different from that or does it really matter in this case or what i it's i think his opinion on sex is we're gonna get into what happens with samad and sex it's not great okay i was just gonna like it sounds like if he's if he is really pious about it and she views it as a means to an end then it sounds like their their attitudes are fundamentally compatible yeah they are to some degree they are not particularly uh intimate it seems That's- that's too bad. Um, and Archie and Clara have a young girl named Irie. Um, 
And now I've completely forgotten why I'm talking about these kids. Why am I talking about these kids? I don't know, man. I'm not helping you out of this. Oh, geez. <laughs> oh, so we're talking about we're talking about uh, the next generation and sure Samad's whether or not he has sex. Um, right, right. And he really wants his two sons to be like good Muslim boys, like. He wants them to respect their faith and to behave. Um, and there's this tension between, like, wanting them to, like, honor their culture and their religion. But he's not sure how much he wants them to assimilate. So, like, assimilation and the challenges thereof is a big theme in this book. Um, there's a scene where he's, like, visiting the boys' music class and they're being asked what like their favorite music is and uh his one son says like Bruce Springsteen and the other one says like Michael Jackson <laughs> he's like i don't these are not you could also talk about like the music of your homeland that would be cool too <laughs> you could but i think those two selections are not bad either no that's not they're not even british so i don't really know they have cross-cultural appeal. Like that's what that's part of what makes them significant. Yeah, at at one point uh his his son Magid uh asks to be called Bark Smith <laughs> and he like yells that he gave him this glorious uh Muslim name and he's like you want to be called Mark Smith. So like oh, I thought you said Bark Smith. No, Mark Smith. Oh, that makes me think of more good dog names, though, like from the other day. Oh, jeez. Something that we do sometimes is we'll, like, talk about what a good dog name would be. So I just thought about Bark Ruffalo or maybe Bark Summers. There are a lot of marks that you could really make it work with, I think. Benedict Cumberfetch. That's pretty good. Bonedict Cumberfetch. In keeping with the British the- like themes of this book, like that's very mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any other ones, real quick? No, I'll I'll keep thinking about it. All then. right, you think about it. You definitely hit us with your best dog names, at overdue pod at, on Twitter. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, the three kids, uh, Magid, Milat, and uh, Irie, are like the next generation, and whether or not they are going to like become more british than their parents uh or perhaps even as the book often says the phrase more british than the british like because they're rebelling against their parents they over adopt elements of british culture okay um or elements of popular culture sure Um, and this gets us to the central event in the middle of the book uh which is Samat has now joined the like parent teacher association of their local school, which is like I read this chapter and I was like, oh God, this is totally gonna be me when I have kids. Like <laughs> I'm gonna show up at these school board meetings and I'm gonna be a nuisance. Oh, you're gonna be the worst. I'm gonna be, well, or the best. Mm, I'm gonna stick with my original okay. assessment. No, that's fine. Uh-huh. And they are talking about the upcoming like fall festival which Samad is arguing sounds very pagan and they certainly haven't adopted many Muslim holidays into their calendar and they probably should 
And after he causes like a big ruckus, he ends up talking to their music teacher. And she's like, oh, that's you raised some really good points. We should really like we should meet up and talk about it before the next uh, PTA meeting. Mm -hmm. And of course, he spends the intervening two months masturbating more than he ever has in his life because he is attracted to this lady. And mm-hmm. as I said, he does not have a very uh, warm relationship at home, let's say. Cool. So this... I have no jokes that feel okay to make. So sure. I'm, just, I'm going to make a meta joke about that. Great. And then move on to the next thing. <laughs> Let it be known that there were jokes you could have made <laughs> and you mm-hmm. just declined the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um so what's the fifth amendment for but for jokes <laughs> I, ca- I will not make a joke that will incriminate me <laughs> and you cannot compel me to so he does eventually embark on an actual affair with this woman and it doesn't go great and of course because he's a man of intense faith he like ends up questioning himself and what he's doing and tries to like you know he finds connections between this choice and how he's raising his son so he he decides that the thing he needs to do is to make sure that one of his sons both of whom are kind of like not on board with the muslim thing uh get on board so he's going to send one of them andrew cuz he certainly can't afford to send both back to bangladesh so that they can grow up more muslim than they would Okay, and, so, more, and this is his way of trying to uh, trying to like ease atone. his own guilt is yeah. to impose this on on other people. Now, and these are twin boys, and Magid is uh, obviously a little smarter and more polite. And why obviously? He's I don't. Uh, he like purposefully wears a suit and tie as a little kid, like. And really warms up to teachers and takes notes all the time. And Malat's like, I'm just going to run around. I don't really care. You'll you'll catch me later. <laughs> See ya. So he's a nerd. He's a bit of a nerd. He's a bit of a nerd. All right. And he uh, he ultimately chooses Magid to send back. His question being like, do I send the kid who could really use the structure? Or do I send the kid who would flourish in it more? which I suppose is a choice you you have to force yourself to make. If you get to the point where you're making this choice in the first place, I guess that's a like that's a rational way to approach it. Yeah, totally. And who I would argue that like being in a position where this choice is a thing that you're making in the first place is not great, but yeah, I that's would... not, you know, that's not me. I'd say so. Uh and of course, Andrew, who do you think like knows that he's come up with this plan? Um, what are my options? Like, well, like wife? No, I don't know. She doesn't know. The kids. Does anybody know? Is this a trick question? The kids don't know. The two people who know are Archie, his best bud from the war, Mm -hmm. and the woman he's sleeping with. They know. Uh, so he, he can't leave the restaurant. So he has Archie take his kid to the airport and send his kid back to Bangladesh. And then he goes back and gets in a fight with his wife and then calls his mistress and says, no more sleeping together. That's it. I guess he solved it. So, yeah. I get. 
the way the way you're explaining this, it sounds like he has pretty much all the agency in this little affair that he's having. Like he decides that oh we're having an affair now, and then he decides oh our affair is done. Like this, do we get any sense of her as a character, or is she just there kind of as a plot device to make him question his faith and he comes, impose that faith upon his offspring? Uh, in terms of the affair specifically. She comes back, the teacher does, and is like, hey, I'm getting out of this what I want to get out of this. You don't get to, like, leave your marriage out of this. I'm here to sleep with you, and I like you. So, like, that's fine. She is very on her, she's doing this on her own terms. Mm -hmm. And then later, when he shuts it down abruptly, she, like, wigs out and then goes and has, like, a big dinner at his restaurant to, like, rub it, rub herself, basically, in his face to be like, you jerk Hmm. um and his wife reacts to this like you sent my son back to our homeland without telling me uh by refusing to ever answer him with a like certain response so if he asks her like where my where are my shoes she'll say like maybe they're upstairs maybe they're in the basement what's for dinner maybe chicken (laughs) Maybe grilled cheese. <laughs> and it like drives him nuts. It's kind of, it's kind of a, if it weren't heartbreaking because one of her sons got sent back to like a dangerous area because the Indian prime minister was just killed and there's going to be riots in the streets. Now it would be like a pretty good troll. It's like a pretty, pretty good. good troll. Um, Cause she's worried that Bangladesh will also have some of that violence, but that that whole idea of certainty versus like chaos gets to the heart of this Alsana character, and this is Samad's wife. And I think this is like, for me, this is the big like abstract theme of the book. Is okay. like because we are like we've been yeah. doing mostly plot ish stuff, and then going off onto little jags when it's been appropriate. But you said you didn't want to do all plot stuff, and we are like. 10 minutes away from the end we're fine so. we're fine uh i just want to make sure you're talking about the stuff you want to talk about. i do want to talk about this um so this idea of chance and chaos and i think for the immigrant experience that's presented in this book um there's this element of like what you can and can't control and certain characters have moments of clarity like almost capital m capital c clarity um that you as the reader are supposed to read with a certain amount of irony. And Alsana sums this up earlier where she says, there are two types of people in the world and you could figure them out by having them answer this simple questionnaire. Are the skies you sleep under likely to open up for weeks on end? Is the ground you walk on likely to tremble and split? Is there a chance that the ominous mountain casting a midday shadow over your home might one day erupt with no rhyme or reason? And if you answer yes to any of those, you live the life of, you know, many millions of people from the subcontinent uh, or you're English and you've never thought of those things ever. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And she says that this leads to two things. It leads to like a lethargy where like nothing matters because everything, you know, life could be taken away from you at any instant. So like why care about anything? Or it leads to a chaos of like, well, why not overthrow a government? Why not? take what's mine while I can get it. 
uh, because you, as the book says, you learn to hold life lightly. So this, this is what most of the characters in the book are fighting against is this like open-ended, I don't belong. I, the world is just like a bunch of atoms banging into each other and some of them might kill me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and in the latter part of the book, the chapter that's devoted to the kids, it opens with like the literal definition of fundamentalism and all the kids find a version of fundamentalism and extremism that is an attempt to like solve that problem of chaos. So ironically, the one that did not get sent back to, uh, to Bengali, uh, to Bangladesh, excuse me, uh, becomes like a militant Muslim to the kid from the one white family they befriend joins this like animal rights group that's protesting his father's like genetically engineered mouse and that's that's like a whole thing about science attempting to play god and like remove disorder from the human experience um that is the latter like third of the book sure so that is a that is something that will probably stick with me a lot is just this Alsana's like listen if you haven't lived your life with this amount of uncertainty you don't understand where we're coming from mm-hmm. and to to assume that we can have the same level of certainty in a, in a world where we'll always be another is that's just foolish um, okay yeah, it's it's it got me thinking like it was kind of it was fascinating to read a book where the majority of characters were uh people of color and were immigrants to the land, you know, they were not originally their families were not originally from the country that they're living in. Okay. Um and I think that's a very timely issue um from a book that's 16 years old. Um but I rec- like I was reading being like oh, I don't I'm from outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Like I have not moved around that much. I spent 4 years in Ohio and that's that and I don't really think about Scotland even though I know I'm part Scottish. Uh I know that like sometimes when you've moved around Andrew even as an adult like you've like sometimes you've taken ownership of the states you live in. Like, or the cities that you live near? Yeah, like, Ohio I'm from. So, like, I do, I pay probably more attention to what happens there than I would otherwise, but I don't have, I don't think a ton of affection for it. And it has nothing to do with the state or the people in it or anything about it. It's just, like, it's where I lived and how I felt while I was living there, and that's, like, 100% it. Yeah. Um, Like, Jersey we lived in for five years and it's like a lot of people want to want to crap on New Jersey (laughs) and I get I like I get it you want you want your you've said before that you don't get to crap on it the way you want unless you've lived there I I think that's true like you should really you should really understand and love (laughs) New Jersey so you can insult it more more fluently and like with the right spirit in your heart sure that's how i feel about making fun of new jersey pennsylvania jury's still out i don't know yeah this pennsylvania did me pretty bad 
Yeah, it did. It's like pretty it early into my into my run here. So yeah, <laughs> I like it here, but oh boy, <laughs> oh boy, oh boy. Uh, so yeah, it's just an interest. Like the way it this book depicts characters who are uh, searching for and fighting with and fighting for their past. Mm-hmm. Um, like like we said before, like Samad's obsession with whether or not his ancestor was a hero or um, Irie ends up connecting with her grandmother, the like devout Jehovah's Witness, as a way to kind of like rebel against her mom um and ends up like saving up money to go back to Jamaica uh and then as all these characters are like dealing with whether or not this scientist is going to be able to like rewrite the genetic code to remove any uncertainty from what will happen to you um and what are their roots in their own genetic code it's mm-hmm. it's just not a thing that i think about very often um and there's this book does a really really good job of showing why people fight for that knowledge. I don't know. It's not an articulate point, I apologize. No, no, it's okay. Um was there any like were there any other big like bullet points that you wanted to get to or any like other good phrases or anything about the book that you didn't like? Like one criticism I've seen that comes up in reviews is that and this is this is something I think that Smith is thinking of when she calls it a hyperactive 10 year old or whatever mm-hmm, it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a little like sprawling and, and maybe unfocused or like writerly in a bad way, if that makes sense. Like just like trying too hard in a way that doesn't always work. I wouldn't, I couldn't necessarily call it out on that last one. I certainly think there are elements of it that are a little bit of sprawl. Um, Partially, it's it's how it lays out its timeline. Um, the plot of the book moves from these characters getting together, having kids, and then all of a sudden their kids are like dealing with this family of scientists that are rewriting mice. And like, I guess that's the plot. But you're jumping around in people's backstories, and your the timeline is a little wonky. So I certainly. That's the part of it that feels unfocused to me is that it, 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 in its attempt to give you the most important parts of each person's life, it kind of hops around on the timeline in a way that's a little, not, I wouldn't call it frustrating, but it, it certainly takes a little bit more work than your average novel. And that, that okay. gets to your point about it being possibly being a little writerly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for one, am all on board with smith's like pithy turns of phrase um i she also just kind of knows how to settle into a point and just kind of like drop some drop some knowledge on you in a way that i really like about wallace where it's like all of a sudden here's just an essay from the author to you the reader like do you have a specific example yeah, here or yeah. no mm-hmm, okay mm-hmm. so late in the book i re who uh, is in love with one of Samad's sons um, and trying to grapple with whether or not she's ever going to be able to like get that reciprocated. Um, this is not quite in her head. It's the author 
speaking in a way that we're just kind of meant to be over the shoulder. What was it about this unlovable century that convinced us we were, despite everything, eminently lovable as a people, as a species? What made us think that anyone who fails to love us is damaged, lacking, malfunctioning in some way? Greeting cards routinely tell us everybody deserves love. No. Everybody deserves clean water. Not everyone deserves love all the time. (laughs) It's just like, in the moment, that's a really great point to hear as you're watching this teenager make bad decisions because she can't get the guy she loves to love her. Sure. Out of context, it's a decent rumination on the kind of like over focus on self and what that means like oh clearly i like that idea that like she's calling us out for assuming if someone doesn't love us back that like there's something wrong with them yeah. right that's a, that's like a that, storytelling that that trope sort of enti- like you're entitled to whatever which i think is at the root of a lot of like toxic like toxic masculinity in particular just because I think dudes have a way of like internalizing that, and the flip side that gets that also gets put in a lot of stories with um, a female protagonist, where it's like you gotta you gotta solve the guy whose masculinity is in the way of loving you, mm-hmm. like, and that's a that's a byproduct of that masculinity. Sure, um, and that that certainly patriarchy hurts everybody. It does. It really does. It's weird like that. It's <laughs> sneaky. Got us again, patriarchy. Uh, and I, I don't, it won't make sense out of context, but I will say that there's a couple passages in this book where you're like, huh, so that's how someone who has a tangential interest in an extreme cause gets recruited because of like personal slights to them because they mm-hmm. want to get theirs because they've been trampled on and that's really understandable. But oh, wow, now you're looking at them like, signing up for something that you recognize as bad yeah i mean i think that's pretty much how radicalization works right it's yeah like you'd i don't know you you'd find maybe like a, a a community of people to enable you or to like to explain some totally normal thing that happened to you in a way that makes you seem like the victim and you're like missing out on something that's owed to you mm-hmm Mm-hmm. i don't know i don't i don't know and i'm i don't know enough about this like firsthand to to no, and I don't talk either. super intelligently about it, but like I was struck by talking the... talking both about like because it comes up a lot both when you're talking about like ISIS kind of stuff mm-hmm. and about the sort of ra- radicalization we're seeing in a lot of um, like men's rights and white nationalist mm-hmm. communities, like that that kind of thing. I don't know. It's it's on my mind a lot. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. More than I'm not an expert in it, but it's something that I'm increasingly wondering about and worrying about like how do you how do you fight that i was struck by how in the moment sympathetic or at least the amount of understanding i had for someone who'd been like beaten up a bunch as a business owner had been stolen from this is a character in the book and then like told by the cops like file a report and then nothing happens and then an organization comes along and is like we're gonna help you get back at those guys Exactly. And Sign like, up. And you can you can tell yourself all you want. Like, you know, it, there, there are totally reasonable explanations for why I was ignored in this way. But like, one, it doesn't 
like how many times do you have to do that? Exactly. Like how many times will you be asked to do that? And will that actually make anything better? And no, not really. No. So like I get, I guess like wanting to turn to somebody who seems like they have answers, even if maybe they're not like, like they're flawed or, or that's not yeah, like yeah. the the best way to go about things, but you're just like desperate and, and there you go. I don't know. Yeah. She's knocked. She, I think she's knocked or at least recognized a knock against this. Uh, some of the racial stuff in this book as being kind of overly optimistic in terms of characters being able to overcome differences and, and having uh, long lasting relationships that may that don't always acknowledge firsthand the tensions that might be there. Mm-hmm. And I actually found that very refreshing and encouraging and inspiring to read right now. Where, <laughs> whereas like in the intervening 16 years since this book was read, you might go like, well, you didn't really take a hard look at what was actually going on. Um, but I, th- I think there's a flip side to that. I found almost every character in this book very sympathetic, even the ones that are like, maybe we don't, I don't know about that. Because yeah, sometimes they seem like they're doing jerky things. Oh, people do jerky things all throughout this book. <laughs> Ugh, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. So, good? Yeah, it's White great. teeth, white teeth, good? White teeth, great book. Okay. We don't do a review that's the, podcast. That's the review. But if it were I mean, a we review. Don't, we don't do a review podcast, but I think it's, it like, would like behoove us to, at the end, always be like, good book? Good? <laughs> good or bad? Good. Our new segment. Good or bad? Good, maybe? <laughs> also, a good struck me funny. Mm-hmm. If you strike need a, me funny. Strike me. If you need a... a a good euphemism for masturbation. Always. Slap your salami. <laughs> uh, it's a little obvious. Like it, it, It's satisfying like in the moment, but I don't feel good about saying it. No, me neither. You if know? you, the listeners, have a good dog name pun, mm-hmm. um, I want to hear it. I want you to send it to us. I want you to use social media at twitter.com slash overdue pod or facebook.com slash overdue pod and here's some useful dog words okay Uh, bark woof uh i don't know sticks bones fetch tail fur pooch wag snout snout maybe it's not as dog specific and then you can get into breeds but be careful with that Mm -hmm. don't go too obscure with the breed Sure, sure. But I do, like, I would like to hear some good ones. Yeah, please send them our way. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to thank a bunch of people who already reached out to us on Twitter and Facebook this past week. Uh, Christina, Hannah, Michael, somebody named Andrew Cunningham, I don't know who that is. Gary, uh, Dion, Dina. Calls coming from inside the house. <laughs> Dina, who re- listened to our Fifty Shades episodes for the first time. If you've just joined us in the past couple months, like, go back and have a hoot with those things. Uh, Sydney, real Renee, Rebecca, Yerbaswana, Lucas, Swartzwelder, Katie, Starfish Chick, Sophie, Margaret, Emily, Chris, and Melissa. Melissa, Katie, Sarah, Zach, Allison, Annie, Mrs. Trefithic, Sean. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Sean. <laughs> Andrew, if people want to... just hit that name with like a finality. <laughs> I that... think I thought there was more on the list. 
<laughs> Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there, we've got links to the books that we have read and the ones we are going to read if you want to read along. We've got uh, links to iTunes, Google Play, RSS, and Stitcher. Those are all the services you can use to subscribe to the show. If you do subscribe on iTunes especially, do leave us a rating or a review. We've gotten a couple in the last week or so, and we really appreciate them. We're getting pretty close to 400, and Craig likes round numbers so much that even though he's married, he's still celebrating his dating anniversary. So It's the last like, one I get before my real anniversary. Please help him. Please, he's a sick man. Please help him. Rate and review our show on iTunes. <laughs> We've also got links to HeadGum, our podcast network, Spreaker, our podcast host, and our Patreon project, which is a way you can support us financially on an ongoing basis. Um, Craig, is there anything else on that site? Or are we good? Like, what are we reading next week? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? It's I. What is it called? Stealing Christmas? It's called Stealing Christmas. It's a Christmas book? It's called Stealing Christmas. It's by Alexa Riley. Which is actually and, um, like two women, I think, who write I don't know. It's like, don't sexy spoil, Don't spoil next week's episode. But it's a, uh, a sexual holiday book. Yeah. And we haven't read it yet, but we're both going to read it. We're both going to talk about it next week. And we're just like... We're gonna. You know, I hope that we uh, put something in your stocking with this one because I'm looking forward to it. That's I found it on a Goodreads list of sexy Christmas books, <laughs> and it's pretty well reviewed. Okay. Mm-hmm. We just wanted to do some, we wanted to celebrate the holiday season, but we wanted to do something a little different. Maybe a little have a little fun with it. So for once, for <laughs> once. So come back next week and hear us do that. Until then, everyone, thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. And until we talk to you again, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.